Let's ask the Lord to bless it. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for the centuries you've watched over your church. We'd ask that you would continue to be a grace to it and to us in it. We'd ask that we would be faithful to your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. John was just telling me that it looked like I was in every kind of scripture known to man this morning. We've got prophets, we've got Christian history, we've got Jewish history, we've got the Gospels, we've got uh, an epistle, essentially. And it was one of those situations where as I sat thinking of what I was going to um, speak on, a lot of times it comes out of passages that I have been on or talked to somebody about. And it's a sort of... Uh, as much a warning to me and my predilections as it is to anyone. Um, it ends up being essentially a, uh, a discussion about, the, about faith uh, and how many different definitions we have of it, not just of faith proper, but what people mean when they say it and what they're believing on the basis of. You've known people who their faith is the faith in their pastor's faith or their parents' faith or the institution's faith or whatever's faith. Some people think that they have mere faith not in what the church believes but in their actual physical ability to show up in church on an occasional Sunday during the year. We have, so when we start talking about faith to people, you, you talk to a, a Mormon, you talk to a Roman Catholic, you talk to a Protestant, you're going to come up with a different shadowing of faith, because they all know that faith is kind of central. And so we need to watch out for problems in faith. Now, we live in a society, this is always true about humanity, but we live in a society now that because, let's be frank, we are, after the Enlightenment, science has explained everything. We believe that everything is a result of atoms bumping into one another. And uh, we're middle class. Okay, combine all that into a soup, a recipe called middle class minds with science as the answer. And you get this rather dull, dull life. It's only this. Because all they have to do is you, they, they, they pull out some deep sea net and some hideous creature from the other side is in the net. And some scientist runs to the front of the pack and names it something in Latin. And then it's okay. He's not a monster anymore. He's got a Latin name. I mean, it's not that it's Latin. You could have named him Steve. And it would suddenly have made him real rather than um, a, a magical being. We have a lot of dullness. Now, this sermon is a, not against the dull. That's, that's its own problem. Materialism and the dull, the people who look at the scriptures and go, oh, you know that's a metaphor. Well, God help them. I'm worried about people like me. Because you say, all right, Evan, you're pretty dull. 
different kind of tone. As you know, I mean, years ago, I had a Bible study called Things That Go Bump in the Night. Uh, I had a little quote from Hamlet on it. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your vain philosophies. And everybody liked coming to that Bible study. I forget how many years ago, as, as you might remember. Uh, we just went through all the weirdnesses in the Bible. And uh, it, it comes up in conversation a lot, weirdnesses in the Bible. People love chatting about that. And so I was meditating on that weirdness. Um, a couple years ago, I think, uh, Peter recommended to me Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, which is about the weirdness. Had some good things in it, some uh, things I didn't agree with in it. But I wanted to speak about that presence because there's a way of handling it and there's a way of handling it. Isaiah 8, first passage on the right-hand side. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and wizards who chirp and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? It was the phrase chirp and mutter. I was lying in my tub this morning thinking on this concept. And suddenly the phrase chirp and mutter. Where is that? Of course, I didn't have a Bible. I'm in the tub. So I had to wait until after I got out to look it up. What is it about chirping and muttering? Well, it's weird. So the witch doctor, the shaman, the wizard, you go to them, you give them a few dollars, and they start rolling their eyes back in their head and foaming at the mouth and saying weird things in strange tones. And, and you're scared. And you're impressed. And you're a middle-class mother who likes buying, you know, excitements for visiting mediums. We're up to something. And I, I, we're up to it as non-believers, because the non-believers, they watch ghost hunters on TV. You know? It's amazing they let that show on TV. One, they never find any ghosts. But they always get us scared. They always get, oh my gosh, the green video for some reason. What's going on? Well, everyone knows they're not going to find a ghost. Well, everybody wants to find a ghost because wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be really cool? Well, you know, when you find a ghost, um, you're, not, you're, you're not finding a ghost. You're finding out that the afterlife exists. If you found a ghost, you just found out that the afterlife exists. But nobody's interested in finding out if the afterlife exists. They're interested in finding a ghost. They want the excitement of being able to tell a story to their friends around the campfire a few years later that involves their life saw something that was kind of like a ghost. You go, oh really? Now, you don't say, you know, I, I had an experience that made me an absolute believer in the afterlife. No, you don't think that, you don't say that, you just want the excitement of the bizarre, some phantasm floating in the air. So I was thinking of Acts 17, the next passage. 
And they took hold of him, this is Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, We may know, may we know what this new teaching is which you present. For you bring in red some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, wherefore, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time in nothing but except telling or hearing something new. We can be about biblical studies. We can be about all sorts of things in the culture where strangeness impinges upon us. And we're collecting the strange, not collecting the meaning of the strange. I'm not denying the strange exists because I'm not one of the materialists or the dull who can't imagine anything but a metaphor coming out of the mouth of God. I believe these things happen. But I knew, having believed that these things happen, and I have talked to people about them, they are interested. Do you think that angels bred with the daughters of men? Why, yes, I do. It's like a ghost story. They want more. Is that where demons come from? I don't know where demons come from. What are we doing? We see in the Bible. What am I doing? In other words, am I doing something as I feature that which is in the scriptures that brings some things to bear that are bizarre even to the ancient mind? What threat is it to the faith? Because there's a lot of people, like people who check their astrology, people who believe their fortune cookies, people who treat their Bible like it was a fortune cookie, who will listen to any chirping and muttering, who will listen to any false prophet claiming that, you know, I knew somebody who knew somebody whose cousin knew a guy who had raised someone from the dead in New Guinea. And we just suck it. Because we love... Not the... You know, we just want the thrill of believing that someone in the modern day had raised the dead. We want the thrill of that. Because... We actually don't bring it up to a non-Christian because we know it wasn't proved to us. We know it doesn't, oh, I know there is the resurrection because I know a guy who was raised from the dead. We don't say that because we don't know him. And since we're happy to accept the story, you know, five degrees of separation removed, we're just thrilling ourselves with kind of Christian fan fiction about what's going on. We're writing a bizarre accounting, and we're liking the bizarre. Now, in this, I was uh, thinking of a variety of things that I, the reason it came up in my mind is I, we had a big discussion, um, I think it was on my birthday. Um, I think it's on film, Graham put it up on the internet in which somebody, I think it was Josiah Roberts, brought up Melchizedek, and I said something, you mean Christ? And there's a discussion in Bible circles whether Melchizedek is a type of Christ or is he Christ? And it just, I think it creeped him out. 
you know, we, we looked at the scriptures and it, now you run into this on certain questions. I have the, these middle passages, the Matthew, Kings, and Hebrews, are, are just sort of examples for your feeling. You know, when you talk about the Nephilim, everybody likes to talk about the Nephilim. That's what Heiser's book is largely about, uh, those sorts of things. Um, where does your heart go? Where does your mind go regarding it? Because it is biblical. It is a question that exists in the scriptures that God addresses both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, but what is the issue? And how can I separate myself from, you know, clapping my pudgy hands together and running around in glee at what? The triumph of God over the powers? Because that's what it was. And that, in itself, has got a creepy immediacy to it. That, oh my gosh, the living God defeated everything that had raised up against him. Wars in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought with the devil and his angels, and God's angels won. The triumph of God is the immediate point. And we're thinking about angels making Nephilim babies and we're wondering if they can have sex. You know? You know, like man and woman? Is this where demons come from? Because eventually the question gets around to demons. This is what I want you to just at least consider because since you have a pastor I, that has looked into these things, I've taught Bible studies on them, I have a strong opinions, uh, I don't want to be a uh, disruption to your life of faith. I want you to be looking at these things, m being moved by them in the direction they were intended to move you, not the movement that says, well, I'm kind of spiritual because I'm really, really biblical. I'm talking about Bible things all the time. Yeah, is it always demons? Is it always the gifts of the Spirit? Is it always something weird? Remember, you're not a materialist and you're not dull. So you're one of these people who's going to be weird about things and love weird things. And I wanted to put this Matthew passage. This is what, it was the Melchizedek thing in Hebrews. But I'll start with this Matthew 3.1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now in another place <coughs> Jesus Christ when asked says to his questioners if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, because they were expecting Elijah to come before the Messiah came. Elijah not having died. <coughs> and he tells the Jews that he is Elijah, and Elijah, and then John tells the Jews that he's not Elijah. And so you'll often run into the question, what do you think Jesus means by calling, calling John Elijah? 
And I'll read them this passage. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist. Second Kings 1.7, he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair cloth with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. He had the Elijah Tishbite uniform on. Now, when you read that to someone, the question is open. They're, they're thinking about, you know, do I really consider that Elijah might have come back and lived a second life? Blah, blah, blah. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. All the questions, yeah. And then you drop a passage like that on them. And boy, what an excitement. Good times are had by all. Because, oh my gosh, that's so weird. It's so obvious. When you see something in the New Testament that is an obvious quotation of the idea of an Old Testament circumstance, and it, it kind of flips you out. And this one, what does it flip you out about? Uh, preparing the way of the Lord? No, that doesn't even come up. What comes up? Reincarnation. Because that's kind of flippy. You know, that's just our demons involved. We're, we're down here in the ghost hunter script writing department trying to create little excitements that would be nice and biblical. It's like, you know, Christian rock. It isn't really rock, nor is it Christian. Um, that is a... Uh, we want something to hang our hats on that says, yes, I might not be a charismatic, but I, I've got some... I got some strange views. And again, I'm preaching to those of you who like strange views. I'm one of them. And I just got that as an example for you to meditate on. What am I thinking about when I start to realize that John the Baptist may have been Elijah? Somehow, but I, some way I don't know, Christ said he was, and then it describes him exactly the same as Elijah. Is it important? Well, I, don't, I just want to know how you feel. I don't know where your mind goes. The writer of the gospel is saying, this is he who was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, making straight the way of the Lord. Sounds like that's what this excitement of this weirdness is about. My, I should be looking to, at, at, at him being Elijah and going, that must mean, and think of the Messiah coming. Because if the guy preparing the way of the Lord is here, and it really is Elijah, that must mean, not reincarnation, that must mean the Messiah is on his heels. That's the big thing. And we're more interested in ghosts, demons, reincarnation. This other one, it's just one passage, it's out of Hebrews 7. This is on the Melchizedek thing. And this is the passage that came up. And I've only, the, the argument in the writer of Hebrews um, puts a bunch of things on the table. First, by definition of his name, what does he say? First, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Stacks up a bunch of things that, you know, the typologists, the people who are dull and, and materialists and who need to have everything in the Bible, a metaphor, 
uh, want to have it in a category they can fully grasp and not weird, does not weird them out. First off, you believe that a dead Jewish carpenter is the living God. Okay? We're done with getting weirded out. It's just strange, top to bottom. That's what we believe. We're Christians. So, but some people don't want the... Jesus has gotten his way into society like Santa Claus, and, and it really, even though it's really strange that someone sneaks into your house in a bright red suit and leaves you presents, it's a very, very creepy thing. So we're fine with Jesus, but yeah, start adding strangeness unnecessarily. But here's the passage that came up when I was discussing it with these young men. I said, yeah, you can go typology here all you want. Verse 6, but this man, speaking of Melchizedek, who has not their genealogy, there being the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And you may not have recognized this passage because it is so obscure. And it's not worded in a, let's make this clear, sort of fashion. It's very clear. But your eyes can skim over this. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Here, speaking now, tithes are received by mortal men. There, speaking of the moment that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek, there, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Oh. And he's also king of righteousness and king of peace, without father and mother, beginning of days and end of life. The power of an indestructible life, says later in the passage. So, so now, now what? I just, I just threw these out there because they were on our topic list of a couple weeks ago, and, and I know how, you know, when you find that passage that really pushes it forward in the possibility department, it's like that strange noise on ghost hunters, and they go running down into the basement with a real jerky camera, and you're really getting excited because they might see a ghost. You're following this along, and you go, it really may be that Elijah became John the Baptist. It really may be that Christ had been Melchizedek, king of Salem, in 1850 B.C. But what's important to you? It tells us at the end of that passage, you read through chapter 7 of Hebrews. On the other hand, around verse 16, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Are we thinking of this as the power of God in the narrative of history to bring about the better hope of the gospel? That he left all these signs that when you see them, when you recognize them, when you spot Melchizedek being what Melchizedek is, whatever you believe he is, does it drag you back to this better hope that we have above the law. Or just what I said, Jesus being a king of a city in 1850 BC. Do you, do you vacate in the weirdness? Do you enjoy the bizarre? Now the Isaiah passages, um, 
I was thinking of an illustration for the, for those, again, some of you may be materialists and some of you may be dull. And some of you would rather just have a Christianity that doesn't break any new weirdness rules. We'll accept the weirdness we have thus far, the orthodox weirdness, and no more than that. I was thinking of, back in the early days, and some of you are old enough to remember this. I won't let my gaze fall on anyone. Carl. We're all, some, quite a few of us today would probably remember this. Do you remember getting the catalogs in the newspaper or whatever where you could buy a sheet of plastic that you'd stick to the front of your black and white TV that was tinted blue at the top of the plastic, kind of warm tones in the middle, and then green at the bottom. It was just a sheet of plastic that had like a rainbow of those colors. Because it was most, most supposed to make you feel that you had a color TV. <laughs> because generally at the top of the picture was a sky, and the bottom was grass, and in the middle were the faces and stuff. You literally bought this for 10 bucks or whatever it was, and glued it to the front of your TV screen. That's what the materialists and the dull are dealing with as far as, no, I have a color TV, really honest. I have a powerful spiritual experience. Now you have a metaphor. Enjoy that special color. What I wanted to bring back up again was the two passages I started with, Isaiah 8, where we consult the mediums who chirp and mutter. Some of you got caught up, consult the mediums and wizards. And some of you, you mean like Harry Potter? Yes, like Harry Potter. And they chirp and they mutter like in Harry Potter. And I'm sure it's all real. But are you thinking about the word wizards? I get to be a wizard for Halloween because it's biblical. But what is he telling you? Shouldn't you be listening to God? Should not a people consult their God? Should not your mind, when the bizarre comes on, you're not, you don't get around being seduced into pagan mysticism or spiritualism or the worship of angels and demons by denying they exist. That's the general safety spot, right? Just like they say, you will never become a drunk if you never drink. You will never have bad views of the spirits because you don't believe in any spirits. You become a Sadducee. No afterlife, no spirit. We're safe. Because bad things can happen to you. That's what we're preaching about this morning. But he's telling you, these things are so. Don't get caught up in it that way. Shouldn't you be consulting your God? It comes back around down the next passage down, Isaiah 8.20. It's the next verse after he says, Should you not consult their God? To the teaching and to the testimony. Surely, for this word which they speak, there is no dawn. Where we should be driven is to a place out of the bizarre, out of the strangeness. If your mind does not find, you have to find some way to get your mind off the little thrill you were having and into the greater creepy immediacy of your God. And the Word of God, we consider this the Word of God, right? I don't know what degree you consider it so, but there it is. And it's amazing how easily we can just set that aside to go watch a movie about eschatological things or 
or listen to Evan Gasson about demons. To the teaching and to the testimony. The strange things are part of um, the strange things exist. We've got to figure out a way to put them in your faith that doesn't disrupt you to become, you know, an excitable, uh, basing, basing your faith on visions, worship of angels, puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. That's what the creep, chirping and muttering of the Christian world might do. That's what the stories of the Nephilim and the angel babies may do. It's all true, though. We're not making up stories, fairy tales for you to believe in, and you're believing in that, kind of like a, a Scientologist or something. We've got the Word of God telling us about these strange things. What do I do to protect my faith? To the teaching and to the testimony. Now, what happened in Athens, which is the passage we started with, close to the second passage we had, now the Athenians looking for something, hearing something new. These are strange things. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, this is our last passage, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What, therefore, you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now I want you you just walk through a moment where St. Paul is on the Areopagus in Athens, Greece. He is talking to Epicureans and Stoics, and he is referring to an aspect of their religion that we have demonstrable record of in pagan sources. Pisanius mentions these altars to the unknown god. Uh, Philostratus mentions these altars to the unknown god. We know what this is, and, and people who are finding out this is being said in the Bible and then finding out it's real in the earth. They could stop thinking of where Paul's going. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. And he made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation, and look for why he did it. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us. What are we supposed to be about? Yes, the God is in the picture. Yes, the God has tried to do things. Yes, when Epimenides erected this altar to the unknown God in 500 B.C., our God was being testified to there, and they didn't know it. And centuries later, Paul was going to show up in town and say, See that altar? That's my God, and he doesn't need that altar. Yes, it's a strange story. But the point is that man would seek after God. That the Greeks were put where the Greeks were put for the dominance of the Greeks when they had it. But that they would feel after God in the hopes that they might find him. Now that doesn't necessitate that they would seek after God and hope to find him. But that was what God was up to with it. So what God was up to with it 
We, remember, we should be listening to the God rather than to the mediums and wizards. Rather than to the people who are purveyors of the strange, we are finding ourselves encouraged to the right act, the right end. We don't just have questions. Oh, I really have some questions. If I tell you about angel babies, will you stop asking questions? Now I'm going to have more questions. Demons. You call them angel babies because, well, that kind of takes a little the luster off of the angel babies. Yeah, there's pictures. Raphael painted them all the time. Little babies. They're called putti. Fly around. That's how we know they exist. But we're supposed to be reacting to something else. Is your religion the building up of an exciting narrative? Because you're up to, you've heard me talk about this before, the narrative that we put in front of ourselves that we create is aided and comforted and excited by this presence of these bizarre things. But the problem is we're Christians. We're living by the narrative of God. He has made the good creation. We are supposed to find it, live to it, uh, honor it. And so when you take on the bizarre, say, yeah, it's bizarre. God's purposes are exciting. But we're not here for the excitement. It will excite you, but you're not here for the excitement. For in him we live, move, and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being, by the way, that was a quote, the first one was a quote of the guy who had erected the altar to the unknown God. Uh, Epimenides. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone or by representation by the art and imagination of man. And that sort of stuck out to me that, yeah, we're about our own narratives. We're about our own creation in this. And wouldn't it be cool if you had a wand that could do magic? Wouldn't it be cool if your pastor could levitate? It would be cool. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. This is out of context. Where the ignorance we're talking about is our thrill at looking for ghosts. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent because the important thing is that he gets man to repent of his sins. He died not that we would see ghosts. He died not that we would think about the seraphim that Davis read about this morning with the six wings. With only two he flew. What are their wings for? Well, he's just covering themselves and whatever. But but that's so strange. Six wings. Demons. He wants every man, every, all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. What did he assure you of? That Jesus was raised? No. That was just the weird thing. He gave you assurance that he is appointed a day by which he will, on which he will judge the world and your repentance is of some necessity. That's what he assured you of of the resurrection. But we go around trying to prove the resurrection to people so that they would get excited about Christianity and resurrections and reincarnations and angel babies and demons. 
I was just thinking. Um, I, I like to write poetry, and sometimes you just really want to use a certain word because it's so archaic. I, I used. I had a Thanksgiving poem I wrote many years ago. I will not recite it for you, but the word uh, "satisfacted." What a good word! I think I invented it. Is that a real word? Satisfacted. Well, I probably took more pleasure in using it than I probably should have. It wasn't the best, it was a strange word. But it was for my thrill of being a poet, using that kind of diction. Sometimes the archaic and the strange is needed to point in the highest and best way to the thing the poem is about. That if you used an archaic term, when you use a term that nobody uses anymore, because it needs it. God's narrative, these things happen. This weirdness is out there. We're dealing with a world full of spirits. We're dealing with a world full of strange stories because they did happen, but they are about something else. Just like the excitements of human endeavor were there, and we've done them, and Alexander conquered the world, and great. Those are all there, but we are knowing something about the narrative of God, and that's where, that's where our sight should be, because our faith should be in that, not basing your faith on visions and the worship of angels. These are things that I sort of thought about it in terms of things that usually come up in my conversation and I have to be wary of being a purveyor of the strange. That I don't get, you know, attention in those special topics because I can talk about Mount Zaphon with the best of them. We've got to watch out that we don't destroy the faith of others. Okay, do the right thing. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful that our life is exciting in you. They are a bizarre thing, but Lord, we'd ask that you would turn our eyes to you when we see it, that we would extend our inferential capabilities to say, yes, there is an afterlife, not just tell a ghost story. In your son's name, amen.